Welcome to the Dyad Presents, a video game music podcast. I'm the Dyad, and this is the story of Gunpei Yokoi. This is going to be a two-part series on Gunpei Yokoi and his contributions to video games. Of course, I'll be doing so through the lens of VGM. I'm hoping to showcase music on the systems that Yokoi created. The first episode will focus on the Game Boy, and part two next week will pick from the last system he contributed to, the Wonderswan. 
Back in the Virtual Boy episode, number 22 for those keeping score at home, I talked a little bit about my admiration for Yokoi and how I wanted to do a more detailed showcase. Well, I guess the time is now. Similar to my previous system focus episodes, I'm going to do my best to pepper in a little bit of biography in between tracks. And another thing, because I'm going to be spending so much time talking about Yokoi himself, I'm going to say only the bare minimum about the tracks I'll be playing. This was actually a little painful for me, in fact. Um, I even removed some tracks so I could tackle tangents in a future episode. And I hate to give these composers and developers short shrift, but I had to make some editorial choices to fit everything in. Um, you'll see what I mean. The track bringing us in this week is Der Zoo Music from the German-developed Atifanten. It was composed by Stello Ducis. I guess this is also a good time to point out that the tracks I've selected aren't generally connected to Yokoi aside from the fact that they appear on the system that he designed. Yokoi was born in 1941 in Kyoto, Japan. But as for his early life, there isn't really much information available on the internet. The first significant event in his career came in 1965 when he began working at Nintendo. Yokoi was a recent graduate from Doshisha University where he earned a degree in electronics. Despite his qualifications, he started as an assembly line worker and janitor. It's also important to remember that at that time, Nintendo was essentially a card company. Hanafuda are Japanese playing cards used for a number of games specifically suited for the decks. For example, the game Koi Koi. Literally translated, the name Hanafuda means flower cards. Hanafuda cards are divided into 12 suits, one for each month of the year, but there isn't really a discernible pattern to the values within each suit. You basically just have to learn the meaning of each card individually. I'm going to limit myself to how much detail I get into about the cards today, but don't worry, it's on my radar. There's plenty more to say there. Next, I'm going to move on to my second track of the day. It comes from an unreleased game called Dry Mouth. Composed by Jake Kaufman, this is Billy's theme. <laughs> Thank you. 
Jake Kaufman, and this is an unreleased nanogram puzzle game. Don't look it up, I'll get to it, just not today. Anyway, as I was saying, Nintendo started in 1889 by manufacturing exclusively Hanafuda cards. Nintendo's reputation began to spread, and they branched out into Western card games and eventually the toy business. In as late as 1963, the name of the company was Nintendo Playing Card Company Limited. But shortly after the 1964 Tokyo Olympics, the playing card market collapsed and Nintendo struggled financially throughout the rest of the decade. Really, Nintendo seemed a bit desperate. They were all over the map. They attempted all sorts of crazy stuff in an effort to expand the business. They set up a taxi company called Daya, a love hotel chain, um, maybe more on that in a future episode, a TV network, a food company, and a bunch of other stuff. Only a little more than a year after he started at Nintendo, Yokoi got his break. He spent his free time in the factory tinkering with projects. He created toys and gadgets, things like that. One in particular, an extending arm grabber caught the eye of Nintendo's then-president, Hiroshi Yamauchi. During a routine visit of the factory, Yamauchi noticed the device and was impressed by Yokoi and his contraption. Yamauchi ordered Yokoi to properly develop the arm in time for the Christmas sales season. The result was the Ultra Hand. When the user would clasp the handles, the crisscrossing plastic pieces would extend the arm and clasp the tongs-like grippers at the end. Well, it's a little bit hard to describe, it's actually a fairly simple design. Um, if you saw it, you might even recognize it. The toy even made cameos in a couple of different video games. I think there were maybe some for... I want to say there were some on the Famicom, and I almost want to say it was a Wario game. I can't remember exactly, but it's made appearances. However tame or simple the invention might seem today, the Ultra Hand was a huge success. It sold 1.2 million units and helped pluck Nintendo out of the financial difficulties the company was facing. It also landed Yokoi a spot in research and development for Nintendo. He turned out a number of popular gizmos, including one of his most successful toys, a collaboration with Masayuki Uemara, the Nintendo Beam Gun SP. It's actually the predecessor to the NES's own Zapper, in fact. And let me just put a time frame on this. The first version of their light gun came out in 1970. It's almost 15 years before the Zapper debuted. There's even more history there that I kind of just took out of the episode because it was getting a little bit long, but um, uh, Nintendo was converting abandoned bowling alleys into sort of digital clay pigeon shooting ranges. Um, I think I'll probably revisit it. I don't know exactly how I'm going to tie it together, but you know, it doesn't take much with me. I'll get it in there sometime. As for Uemara, he was working at Sharp Corporation at the time, but after the prototype for the beam gun went into full production, Nintendo hired him away. His acquisition cemented the foundation of Nintendo's prestigious R&D 1 division. But probably most importantly, this shift inspired Hiroshi Yamauchi to move Nintendo into video games. Next I'll be playing a track from Alberto Jose Gonzalez. He's truly a master of the Game Boy hardware, and there were a lot of tracks to pick from from him. 
Um, I did grab more than one for the show today, but the second one's going to come a little bit later. From the game Tintin, La Temple du Soleil. And side note, if I didn't know Cirque du Soleil, I definitely would have called this like Soleil. This is the Area 1-2 music. Nintendo acquired the rights to distribute the Magavox Odyssey game console in Japan. By 1977, Nintendo began producing its own hardware. In 1975, Nintendo released their first arcade game, EVR Race. Designed by their first game designer, Genryo Takeda, the game saw limited success. But we'll save the Genryo Takeda talk for his own focus episode. So let's move back to Gunpei Yokoi. The story that everyone has probably already heard is that sometime in 1979, and while I never saw a citation for this, it's the only date I could actually find, Gunpei Yokoi was riding the bullet train home and noticed a fellow businessman entertaining himself with an LCD calculator, or some reports say a digital watch. Reportedly, Yokoi wondered if commuters looking to pass the time might be interested in a portable gaming device. This planted the seeds that would eventually grow to become the Game & Watch, the first real portable gaming device and the obvious progenitor to the Game Boy. The first Game & Watch system called Ball launched in 1980 
Over the next decade, 59 more titles were released. The Game & Watch series were simple LCD games controlled by a series of face buttons. The screen was painted with a static backdrop and monochromatic objects appeared on screen. But first, another track and another odd Game Boy selection. Again, we're not focusing on Gunpei Yokoi. I could fill this show very easily. This comes from the game Trip World. It's composed by the team Phase Out, which consists of Masayuki Iwata, Tsutomu Ishida, and Atsushi Mihiro. This is the World 3-1 theme. tasked with supervising the development of an arcade game created by a young Shigeru Miyamoto. I'm hopeful that everyone listening realizes that is the same guy who made, you know, Mario and some stuff. Two years prior, Miyamoto had worked on his first game, an arcade shooter called Radar Scope. In Japan, the game was reasonably successful. In fact, at one point, it was second in popularity only to the iconic Pac-Man. But by the time the game shipped overseas, the buzz had dissipated. North American audiences didn't really share the same affection, and the game sold very poorly. 
With thousands of unsold cabinets mothballed in the warehouse, the newly formed Nintendo of America faced financial disaster. But with Yokoi acting as producer, Miyamoto and he set out to retool the existing hardware and reconfigure it into a new game altogether. In the end, they came up with the arcade classic, Donkey Kong. Nintendo quickly shipped conversion kits to America, and I read that 2,000 out of the 3,000 units were swapped over and sold. Moving back to the Game & Watch series, the increasing complexity of the games led to arguably the most important contribution Yokoi made to gaming. Starting with the Game & Watch version of Donkey Kong, Yokoi was forced to figure out a better way to control the player's movement. Up to that point, the Game & Watch units only offered two buttons, a left and a right. So Yokoi designed a small cross control, a single button that moved in four directions, depending on the direction of the pressure. And thus, the D-pad was born. It's something so basic that it probably goes unnoticed by most, but yes, someone actually had to come up with the idea in the first place. Even without the rest of his contributions, the D-pad alone is worth a seat in some kind of Hall of Fame. Next we're going to go back and visit Alberto Jose Gonzalez. This time from the game Turok 2, Seeds of Evil. This is the mountain stage.
Yokoi's self-described philosophy is translated as lateral thinking of withered technology, or sometimes lateral thinking with seasoned technology. The general idea is to use an older, well-understood technology. By focusing on dated tech, a manufacturer is able to keep costs low. The lateral thinking aspect focuses on finding new ways to use the technology. Yokoi believed that toys didn't need to be cutting edge so long as they offered novel and fun gameplay. In fact, in an interview, he argued that using forefront technology could inhibit the development of new products. To paraphrase, he felt that being shackled to using only the biggest, fastest, and strongest would stymie your creativity. The Game & Watch series was the embodiment of this doctrine. In the late 70s, fierce competition between Sharp and Casio in the digital watch market created a glut of LCD displays and other parts and semiconductors used in their production. Yokoi's lateral thinking discovered the fun and cheap way to use the abundant technology. And following in the same footsteps is Yokoi's most famous contribution. 1989 saw the debut of Nintendo's Game Boy. Offering a modest four-color monochrome display and no backlight, the Game Boy was competitive with a price tag a shade under $100. A testament to his vision and ideology, the long battery life of the portable is widely believed to be responsible for the Game Boy's dominance over its eventual competitors. Directly the result of the low demands of the data technology inside, Yokoi's vision led to the sale of nearly 119 million units of the original and Game Boy Color versions of the line. And the tenants are still very much a part of Nintendo's design philosophy today. In fact, Satoru Iwata, the CEO from 2002 to 2015, said as much in an interview. The Wii itself is an excellent example. The initial reveal press release has Nintendo laughing off the games journalists interested in the technical specs. I like to think that Yokoi would be pretty pleased with that. Next, from the game International Superstar Soccer. Uh, I had a hard time finding credits for this game. I saw one place list Akira Yamaoka for audio, but it didn't specify it was if it was the original SNES version or the Game Boy. Um, since it's all I have to go off, I'm going to include it, but I'm not 100% sure. Anyway, this is the title theme.
In Yokoi's autobiography, he describes feeling out of place in the gaming industry in the 90s. He said that it was turning into a technological arms race, ignoring gameplay in favor of fancy graphics. So really, it's no wonder that he jumped at the chance to try something completely different. But for more info on that, you're going to have to go back and check out the Virtual Boy episode. And really, the VB episode is a nice middle point in the series. It doesn't focus much on Yokoi, but it may help bridge the gap between these two episodes I'm working on right now. So go revisit it if you like. No pressure. Next week, we leap forward in time and take a closer look at Yokoi's departure from Nintendo. We'll also get into his final product, the Wonder Swan. Unfortunately, there is going to be a bit less to talk about on that end of his career, but don't worry, I've got some other things I've mixed in. And thanks for sticking with me today. I know it's been an unusual episode, but I'm happy I got to pay a little tribute to a truly important figure in video game history. Before I go, as always, special thanks to Alan Euler, aka Periodical, for mixing and editing this show. I'm happy to report he made it back from Canada with no bear attacks. You can follow the show at thedietpresents.blogspot.com where I post the track list for the show. You can subscribe via your favorite podcatcher. And don't forget to rate the show on iTunes. You can follow me on Twitter at The Dyad and you can email me at thedietpresents at gmail.com. There's a Facebook page and group you can find by searching for my name or uh, the name of the podcast. Until next week's part two on Gunpei Yokoi, this is Gradius the Interstellar Assault, composed by Yoshiyuki Hagiwara. This track is the staff role. <laughs>